Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Lots on our mind this week, and I guess it's because we're in a period of historic change, but we have to choose, uh, pick and choose which subjects to hit. And I'm going to hit a couple here. One is, you know what? I mean, you may be different, but I don't like sending my money to government needlessly if they're going to blow it. And I can give you lots of examples where I consider they blew the money. I'm going to talk with Michael Levy about one of the examples coming up, coming out of the pandemic. And the number's huge. It's in the neighborhood of $31 billion. Well, that's why I'm also bringing on Tim Sesnick, though, our resident tax expert. There are things you should do before the end of the year to make sure that you are paying the appropriate amount of tax, but minimizing it. So Tim's going to give us some tips on that way. And speaking on tips, I've got Ian Patterson from Pluralock. This is also the time of year that people have a lot of worries about cybersecurity in their own lives, whether it's a text message, whether it's uh, an email, that kind of stuff. Well, Ian's going to give us some specific suggestions, and there's one I really want you to hear about. There's been a change in how they think you can protect yourself when it comes to your password, so stay tuned for that. I've also got Ozzy, some big-time stuff in the real estate market, and Victor Adair's got so many things to keep an eye on for us. Uh, He's going to back clean up. So as I say, no shortage of things to talk about. But first, you know, it's interesting to note the outrage over the failure of, well, major firms to do their due diligence when it came to pouring in, well, times hundreds of millions of dollars into the crypto disaster FTX. I say fair enough. But come on, when the receiver in charge of liquidation, and this is in very short order, he has a looks at the book, look at the books. He says in his 40-year career as an auditor, he says, never seen such a complete failure of corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information has occurred here. Well, come on, you know those firms certainly didn't do their due diligence if he can come to that conclusion so quickly. But here's the point. When it comes to what Sam Bankman-Fried called talking a good game with regard to green investments from ESG to government multi-billion dollar programs, FTX isn't anything new. That's been going on for decades. Due diligence, by the way, is broadly defined as the process of doing extensive research to evaluate an investment decision, including the risk, while considering all possibilities and verifying the information used. You hear that? Verifying the information used. That's not a tough concept to understand. It's been a foundation of the investment world, well, forever. Yet lately, we've seen it discarded. Maybe it's because we've been in a can't-miss market. You know, everything went up. Baseball cards, non-fungible tokens, cryptocurrencies, housing, stocks without earnings, and everything. Well, at least until they don't. Then, as Warren Buffett says, it's only when the tide goes out do we find out who's been swimming naked. And come on, there's a lot of nudity these days. But nowhere more obvious than the world of crypto, led by FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried, where some major names in finance, and we're talking from BlackRock, Sequoia Capital, Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, all lost big money. Clearly, they didn't do their due diligence. Neither did celebrities like Tom Brady, Matt Damon, Philadelphia 76ers star Joel Embiid, Kevin O'Leary, Larry David, LeBron James, Naomi Osaka. Do I need to go further? Okay, maybe just this. Just to remind you that in his infamous Super Bowl ad, For Crypto.com, Matt Damon compared the advent of crypto to the development of aviation and space flight. God, I nearly gagged when I saw that watching the Super Bowl. Come on, you got celebrities, though, pocketing big money in order to influence people who didn't have a clear idea as to the risks involved. Celebrities didn't do one moment of due diligence. They're acting like they're selling lipstick and running shoes. 
Or maybe they were just taking their lead from the likes of BlackRock or Singapore's Temasek or Lightspeed Venture Partners or SoftBank. But it's more than just intellectual laziness, and I think that's the point you got to get. It's a predictable byproduct of the emphasis we put on virtue signaling. I thought the New, York mag- New Yorker magazine absolutely nailed it when they said, virtue was the con in referring to FTX. Just say the magic words, and whether they are ESG or climate change, or in Sam Bankman-Fried's case, talk about what he says is, you know, it's called effective altruism. His grandiose promise to donate his billions to worthy concept causes. Presto, no need for due diligence then, as long as you say the magic woke words. But as Bankman-Fried stated in quotes, it's a dumb game we woke Westerners play, where we say all the right shibboleths and everyone likes us. Well, that certainly works for a lot of politicians, and the heck with the results. Literally hundreds of billions of dollars have been lost and wasted under the guise of fighting climate change or in ESG due to a, fa- a failure to perform proper due diligence or even something as straightforward as a cost-benefit analysis. I'm going to give you just a couple examples. I could go to literally hundreds of them. But just like FTX, as long as it was branded as fighting climate change or under the guise of ESG, no need for questions. Actually, it was worse than that. The prevailing attitude is, how dare you ask questions? I'll give you just a couple, as I said. Maybe the EU, European Union, would have done proper due diligence before they subsidized, you're hearing this, $6.5 billion in wind power projects in Italy. Oh, if they had done a little due diligence, they would have found that the companies who got the money were owned by the mafia. In Canada, 1998-2003, early days, the bureaucrats in charge of our Kyoto Accord programs They stated bluntly that Canada just wasted $4 billion. Former Liberal cabinet minister Lloyd Axworthy, at the time he was heading the Liberals' renewal push, he stated the crypto expenditures, in quotes, weren't real anyways. How about Ontario? This is a beauty. Where the Auditor General stated in reviewing $8 billion in climate expenditures under the Ontario Liberals, said in quotes, normal due diligence for an expenditure of this magnitude has not been followed. Well, I'm just telling you that that's the norm, not the exception. And we shouldn't be surprised because our emphasis on what people said, not on what they did. Another example, 2017, I looked at 39 different companies that received, mostly in the U.S., but some Canadian, tax dollars. Government didn't do thorough due diligence, including the infamous half-billion-dollar solar energy failure, Solandra. All were bankrupt. As I said, I can go on. Literally hundreds of other examples, but I'm going to fast forward to finish off with ESG, environment, sustainability, and governance. Massive expenditures without even an agreed-upon definition of what constitutes ESG or an objective set of measures. Not much for climate goals. No, that wasn't it. This was a successful marketing slogan to raise money from taxpayers and private investors. Give you just some examples how successful it was. 2020. Well, ESG funds captured about $51 billion of net new money from investors. That was double what they did in 2019. But by 2021, it had more than doubled again to $120 billion. As I said, didn't do much for the environment. My goodness, it was a great commission generator. EcoBusiness did a report on this. Out of 253 funds that switched to a focus, ESG focus, in 2020 in the U.S., 87% rebranded 
They added words like sustainable, green, climate change, but, and it's a big but, none of them, 87%, none of them changed their stock or bond holdings. Two weeks ago, Bankman Freed said in quotes, in the future, I'm going to care less about the dumb, contentless, good actor framework. What matters is what you do. Well, I agree with him. But ultimately, it all falls on us. If we're happy with politicians just spouting the right things or climate activists. Well, for those people, especially those who list climate and ESG at the top of their concerns, are they serious, though? Or is it just they are grandstanding? Because so far, the answer isn't pretty, as investors in FTX can attest. Hey, by the way, we've got to remind you, February 3rd and 4th, we got the World Outlook Conference. But this is what I'm reminding you about. I know I've been talking about it. But here's the thing. You can get the one-ounce silver coin. I always think that stuff is cool. One-ounce silver coin. If you get in, there's only a few of the packages left for the VIPs. Yeah, you miss the early bird discount, but jump in. Get your one-ounce silver coin. Great time to do it. And yeah, I'll be talking about it till now, till then, because there's so much to talk about uh, as we do on the show every week. But I hope you take the chance because this is live in person. We haven't been able to do that in about four years. So I'm really looking forward to getting a chance to visit with people. But the list of speakers is spectacular. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can get your ticket today. But hey, just a reminder, grab your one ounce silver coin. Michael Levy joins me on the line now. I got to say this. Mike, you sent me an email. I just want to share it with everybody. And all the email says, I bet you got a headache now. And you were referring to the Auditor General's report and how much money, uh, let's say, is questionable, maybe ineligible when we came to pandemic spending. So I want to just say in advance, thanks for that. Well, you're welcome, Mike. But let me just give you one example. 6.1 million in curb payments to 1,522 people who were in prison and 1.2 million to 391 dead people. I went to the cemetery to find my dad's plot, see if any of the money went there. (laughs) Well, and again, uh, the one that had been jumping out at me for a while was 40,000 payments or 40,000 grade nine students or less uh, or younger rather, uh, you know, they receive payments, but she throws one in there. There's 2.2 million in CERB payments went to 434 children who were indeed under 15 years of age. I was just looking to see whether any of my grandchildren got it and I would be able to split it with them. I, you know, just tell them (laughs) that, uh, just leave it to me, kids. But, you know, Mike, the whole thing is, is Karen Hogan said billions of dollars in ineligible COVID-19 benefit payments are going at risk of not being collected because the feds are doing such a poor job of identifying individuals and businesses that should pay back funds. And Mike, we are talking about more than $210 billion paid out in 2020 to mid-2022. To mid I'm not saying that a lot of it shouldn't have gone out. Sure, it should have. But God, there was no controls. And now that's just rearing its ugly head. Yeah, I think my problem with this is, yeah, the government made a choice to, they were going to flush money into the system. But, you know, when they were approached, and it wasn't later in the game, it was right away. It was April, May, they were approached by the CR saying we've read CRA, we've red flagged some, you know, some what we think might be fraudulent claims, and they were told not to follow up. 
That's the thing that drives me crazy. I mean, we're talking about by May of 220, they had something like 200,000 questionable EI claims, you know, based on this. Yeah. Uh, tens of thousands more getting, the, you know, the emergency benefits as we're alluding to. So I think that's my problem. It wasn't, hey, yeah, it was a pandemic. There was tough times. They had to roll out a program quickly, but it didn't seem to bother them when they were approached early on. And it continued for quite a while. We've got some fraud on our hands. Oh, oh, we do. And the Auditor General, this is sort of the main key point to start out with. She found $4.6 billion in overpayment to ineligible recipients. And if that's not bad enough, an additional $27.5 billion that should be investigated further. And they're not even partway down that or up that ladder, Mike. And the government is pushing back. CRA is pushing back. And I mean, she's the auditor general. She's she she is appointed. This is her job. This is her obligation. This is a responsibility to Canadians all across the country. And it, it just seems to be a circle and everybody's running in that same circle to not have this unfold. Yeah. And, and we are talking a tremendous amount of money. And I've got to say that that further uh, why I don't have sympathy for the government on this is they have already sort of dismissed the report. This is the Auditor General, you know, got no axe to grind other than what's what. And yet we still see signs that, you know, uh, in the federal government level is saying, ah, it's not that big a deal. You know, uh, it's a huge deal. We're talking about huge amounts of money that are clearly uh, you know, questionable. And as, as you said, right off the top, by the way, the Auditor General says, you know what, we may not be able to collect much of this back. Well, you know, and, and there's another aspect, Mike, because the money that was uh, paid out, it didn't actually directly impact inflation, but it created excess demand by consumers that the Bank of Canada is trying to curb the impact on the extra spending and demand created by the amount of money the government threw at Canadians by raising interest rates. So part of the catalyst of interest rates going up is the excess demand by all of her, from all the free money so far that was expended by the government and went into the hands of individuals who didn't really meet the test of needing that money. Yeah, I mean, and there's so many examples, what, $15.5 in the report for businesses received the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, but they didn't suffer a significant drop in revenue. That's what it was supposed to cover, and they didn't have one. So again, uh, we also know that the bulk of the money went to people who did not suffer financially. That's been my complaint. That's, for me, the inflationary side. You send money to people who were not impacted. That comes in combination with people who were not spending as much because of restrictions. And then there was supply shortages. Man, when that gets unleashed, you get exactly what we've got. Tons of money chasing fewer goods. That pushes prices up. Well, all I know is that if I miss a payment, a quarterly installment with the uh, with CRA, I get letters and notes and emails and got to log on to my site Meanwhile, this money is waiting out there to be at least reconciled, Mike. I'm not saying so much of it was undeserved or, or, or I'm not saying so much of it went blindly to certain places. Obviously, it did. But now here's a solution. And let CRA and, uh, CRA and uh, the government get together and go back and get some of that money that deserves to be back in the pocket of, uh, of Canadians 
by having less debt and deficit by the government if that money can flow back. Well, and again, people are going to have different views. Some people aren't going to be worried about this as long as they got their check, et cetera. You know, but let's face it, this adds to our deficit. It's, you know, it exploded our deficit. Yes, I was right up front, by the way, Mike, early on saying, we're going to, if you're forcing people to close their business, leave their job, you got to help them. All I'm complaining about is that when they were warned, there was incredible fraud going on, warned by the big banks, by the way, that people were walking in with several types of checks, that kind of stuff. There was no interest in curbing it back. That wasn't the agenda at the moment. Well, I think it's coming back to bite us. I think there's going to be more on this file. And again, I acknowledge that some people won't be bothered a bit. I just happen to be one who is. You were right. I got a headache. And you know what? Thanks for giving me one. I hope you have a <laughs> lousy week. <laughs> yeah, Mike, yeah. you know what? This is very, very important to talk about because the government is in such great deficit and having trouble with revenues coming in and um, uh, uh, containing the debt, containing the deficits that anything they can do. And this looks like if they put their mind to it and did it and followed the uh, uh, Auditor General, that this could probably lead somewhere to relieving some of that pressure of debt. Well, and again, <clears throat> excuse me, with the interest rate rise this week, that again adds about two million billion, sorry, B billion in interest costs. I mean, yeah, it's our financial situation should be taken very seriously. So should this report. But again, I want to acknowledge there's some who disagree with me. Mike, in the meantime, go out and have a great week. You too, Mike. Thanks. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, arguably Canada's most controversial foreign affairs policy has been regarding China. Then again, maybe it's not arguable, given the government's refusal for the first six years in power to take a strong stand. Even when it came to things like kidnapping Michael Spavar, Michael Kovrig, or, or to ignoring the warnings of CSIS and the Canadian military, and continuing right into the interference now reported by Sam Cooper on Global in our federal election. Canada's reluctance to push back against Xi Jinping has resulted in being frozen out by the four other members of the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance. They actually went ahead on specific policies, didn't include Canada. But now maybe there's a slight change coming, I don't know. But there certainly is in the States with tougher talk, uh, tough stance by the Biden administration highlighted in the quote of the week by the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Gina M. Raimondo, who sums up the threat in quotes. China today poses a set of growing challenges to our national security. It is deploying its military in ways that undermine the security of our allies and partners and the free throw of global trade. Canada dominates the manufacturing of many critical materials and goods and has exploited other economies' dependence on its market for political coercion. It also seeks to dominate certain advanced techno uh, technology sectors while using many of those technologies to advance its military modernization and undermine fundamental human rights at home and abroad. China is an irresponsible global actor that must be countered with a comprehensive U.S. grand strategy. End of quote. Well, she did not sugarcoat it. That about sums it up. But man, talk about a few years too late. Uh, there is so much to do. And I'll remind you of what we did a few weeks ago. You can still go grab it from the archives. Our interview with uh, Professor Chris Miller on chip wars to do with China's efforts to dominate the chip market. And that's what Taiwan is all about. Because you control the chip uh, processing chip market, look out, especially oh, at the high end is what I'm talking about. Anyways, great 
to go back, if you haven't heard it, Dr. Chris Miller talking on Ship Wars, his latest book. You know, this is the time of year we get busy with other things, but I want to make sure that you've done everything you can in the legal sense to minimize the tax you're paying. I mean, why throw more money at the government? Now, you may like that. I certainly don't. I read too many stories. In fact, uh, you know, you hear me with Michael Levy today talking about all of the questionable CERB spending and other pandemic-related spending. Well, we can, as I say, enough said about that. But Tim Sesnick is our go-to guy when we talk about taxation. He's the CEO of our family office. And Tim, please know how much we appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. I'm always glad to join the show, uh, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it's it's interesting, as as you know. I mean, people get busy with stuff. I, I've certainly been a victim of this once with uh, charitable donations. Luckily, they gave us a little break with that, but I didn't make them by the end of the year. There's a couple more I wanted to thing in. So that's typical of what goes on. So maybe I'll start with charity on that and talk about stuff I've got to take care of, you know, by the end of this tax year. Yeah, for I mean, for sure. Obviously, there, there's when you get to the end of the year, there's not always a lot that you can do to reduce your tax liability for the year. But obviously, charitable donations is one of those things that you can do. In fact, you can make a difference uh, not only in your community, but to your tax bill right up to December 31st at 11 p.m. or 11.59 p.m. if you want. Um, one way you can do that, Michael, is, is uh, by donating online. There are a number of charities that will accept donations online. One of my uh, favorite websites is canadahelps.org, mm-hmm. and you can make a donation to any charity in the country through that website, even as late as you know 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, and you'll get your donation receipt for this calendar year. So, And you know this is a good year to think about doing this because a lot of charities are really struggling, uh, even though people are you know hesitant to give as much as they have in the past because of the state of the economy. It's there's there's a need more than ever, so so please be generous. Yeah, and, and you know I, I talk all the time about Special Olympics, and that's where I hope people, you know, we have sort of you can send an, an athlete to our Winter Games here, first time in years, four years we've had them. Well, that's an example, but there's many many others. And but the other thing, by the way, I like CanadaHelps.org is because they'll keep a track of what I've done. So if I get down to April, you know, and I'm putting my tax stuff together, and I go, did I do that or not? Well, I just have to click on my the site there, and they say, "Yes, you did. Here's your list, you know, of things." And and, and by the way, I, I I noticed on there the other day that you can actually purchase give giving cards, so you can make a donation on behalf of, for somebody, um, and give them this card, and they can go on and allocate those dollars to whatever charity you'd like to give that they'd like to give to. So it's it's a great gift for somebody who's got everything. Yeah, and 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 a lot of us do, and a lot of us don't, and that's what we're t- talking about helping a lot of us who don't, but. Yeah, I mean, I one of the things I made a distinction, just you know, Tim, over the last couple of years, that used to drive me crazy when I'd hear politicians say, we're all in this together. And I'm going, that's absurd. Mm-hmm. I am not in this. I am, I'm in the laptop class. You know, I was choosing between mm-hmm. two homes to live in during the lockdown periods. You know, uh, I wasn't yeah. worried about my, making ends meet. And I thought the insensitivity of those kind of statements just drove me to distraction. Because yeah, for sure. I was not living the same life as, uh, you know, a single parent with two kids in a one bedroom. And that happened or in yeah. the inner city core. So uh, this is a great opportunity. I love the idea of giving away a, a charitable gift card because I don't need another sweater. In fact, I, I swear to God, I just had that conversation <laughs> yeah. with my wife this morning and going, you know, I don't think I need another sweater for Christmas. But what a great you know, idea. 
Yeah, very good idea. So, yeah, it's good to be generous this year. Uh, by the way, with charitable donations, can you pool them? Like you, you have a, a spouse, and uh, mm. my in my case, my wife makes a, a, you know a thousand dollars. I make a thousand. Can we choose to put that all on mine because I'm the higher income earner? Yeah, that, that's a good point. So I was talking to a family last week where it, it was the, the husband that had um, a lot of stock that had appreciated in value. So he wanted to donate that to charity, but his wife actually needed some tax relief. So I said, look, don't worry about it. You can make, doesn't matter which spouse makes the donation. Uh, the donation can be claimed by either spouse or both. You can split, split it between the two. So that's a great thing to do. Uh, you'll, you'll look after that when you file your tax return in the new year. Um, but also giving giving securities rather than cash will actually save you a lot more if those securities have gone up in value. Well, yeah, let's go a little bit further with that because if you do have uh, – so what are the tax implications in that way? So let's say I've got a 1,000 shares of the old ABC Corp. You know, am I original yeah. or what? But I've got a 1,000 shares, and let's say I've got uh, $5,000 in capital gains. Now what? Well, so so if you've got appreciated stock, you've got capital gains there. When you donate some of those shares to charity, any capital gain attached uh, to those shares is eliminated. It's set to zero. The inclusion rate is actually set to zero. But on top of that, so there's no tax to pay on the capital gain. But on top of that, or in addition to that, you get the donation tax credit for the fair market value of what you donated. So you're really double dipping in a lot of ways. And the tax relief ends up being a much higher when you do that than if you were to, say, sell the investment take the cash and then donate the cash. So you're better off donating securities than cash. And, and how do you go about doing that? Uh, like, sorry, and I know individual, I'm sorry, individual charities will have different ways of doing it, but I'm just sort of saying, broadly speaking, do you contact the charity and say, I want to give you a stock or an in-kind donation? And then they'll yeah. say, well, go do it this way kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. A lot of charities today can receive shares or or even bonds as as donations. They'll facilitate it. You, they'll have a broker, and you'll have your investment advisor or broker or or investment account, and you can transfer the investments directly from your account to the charity's account. If a charity doesn't have the means to do that, then you can use an organization like CanadaHelps.org, uh, and they'll they'll receive those uh, shares as as a donation and in turn pass the cash along to the charity. So that's something else for people to put on their calendars is, is and don't wait until too late in case the people you deal with financially are on vacation. But that's, it's a great idea though. As you say, it's, it's very advantageous tax wise on a personal basis. If I do it in that way, as opposed to selling the shares, cause I got to claim a capital gain or other, other than, I, even, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, I say, even if your securities have dropped in value, no, Michael, what just happened, happened for a lot of people this year if you make a donation of those securities, you still get a donation tax credit and you can also claim the capital loss on top of that. Oh. So still a good idea. I didn't realize that. So they'd get a yep. fair market value the day I do it. And then I can use that. Oh, that sounds even. Both the loss. Yeah, both the loss and the ca and the donation tax credit are claimable. Wow. Okay, let's move from charities for a second there. And that's, by the way, that's another subject maybe in the new year you and I can chat about because there's some stuff that you've been writing. Tim writes in the Globe and Mail. By the way, he's also the author, in my opinion, of the best tax book. And I've read a lot. I've read a lot. But Tim, <laughs> Tim wrote uh, 101 Tax Secrets for Canadians. And I'll just tell you, Tim, uh, I borrowed the technique you used uh, many times because I just thought, talk about being clear and concise and uh, I, I want you to do a, an updated version of that because I just yeah. thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it, it's due for an update and I should do that. I mean, a lot of the ideas that are in the book are still yes. applicable today. 
Um, so it, it, none of those ideas haven't gone away at all, but it is due for an update, and I plan on doing that in the next year or two. And I'm just going to say the name again, though, 101 Tax Secrets for Canadians. Such wonderful, practical advice. And this is an area, and of course, Tim, you deal with wealth management and, and many other things. We talk about tax. But, uh, you know, I'm just saying that I, I would love to see that. Let me know when you do it. I'll, be, I'll buy the first right. copy. I won't be looking okay. for a freebie. I'll buy uh, the first copy. Well, I was going to say, I'll give you the first copy. You've been good to me. so <laughs> No, no, I'll, I'll be a buyer because it's worth it. Right. It's, it's, it's worth its weight in gold on that one. Tim, let's talk about some other things. And I'm just thinking about expenses. You know, if I'm self-employed, for example, uh, should I be looking to try and move them forward? Kind of, I know, I know I'm going to pay them in January, but if I pay them in December, can I still claim yes. for this year, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few things to think and think about there. First of all, any expenses you want to incur in this calendar year, you can obviously deduct uh, in this calendar year as long as you paid those things for the purpose of earning income from your business. This can also include assets. So, for example, uh, you know, Michael, if somebody's thinking about buying a car for work or uh, another piece of equipment in their business for work, even just you know fixed assets of any kind, it could be a computer. If you buy these things before the end of the year, you can claim capital cost allowance on those assets this year. So, it, you know, if you're going to do it in January anyway, think about accelerating that and buying it this month and you'll save yourself more tax dollars that way. Uh, can I jump to medical expenditures? Because I ran into this and I took out insurance. Let's I'll, I'll pretend it's this year for 2023, but I paid for it in December 2022 when do I write that off? It was, you know, you know, when you do, it's like it was travel insurance for medical. Yeah, yeah for sure. No, it, it's, it, it's claimable in the year that you pay it. So um, uh, that's, that's a good question. And yeah, if people are thinking of traveling and you're going to, you're going to have to buy some travel insurance, consider buying that this month and rather than waiting till January and get a little bit more tax relief for 2022. That goes also for things like uh, childcare expenses, um, um, uh, other costs related to uh, portfolios. So interest costs, make sure you claim interest costs when you file your tax returns. Um, I mean, obviously interest costs is something you normally incur throughout the year, possibly if you're, if you're borrowing money to invest. But I, I encourage people in December every year to just take a look at the coming year and set yourself up for some deductions that maybe you're not claiming now, like interest deductions. Um, there's ways of restructuring your debt. So maybe you can claim some of the interest that you're not claimable, can't be claimed today. And again, it's sort of a mindset. And, and I know it, it sort of irks you a little bit when we talk about this last minute stuff, because of course, what you talk about, and you've done it with us wonderfully, but you talk about is, no, it's, it's a year round tax planning thing to really do an effective job. And I'm sort of coming in at the last minute saying, I was pretty lazy. Can you help me with my weight loss in the last two weeks, you know, for the New Year's Eve party? Just, <laughs> yeah, just don't, just don't eat anything for the next two weeks. That's yeah. All you <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there are some things, there are some things that can be done by year end. Uh, for investors, especially, you think about, you know, for example, if you're thinking of selling something, an investment, and you're selling at a profit, you might want to consider waiting till January. Uh, to sell because then you're triggering the gain next year, not this year. And that would be a smart thing to do. Uh, conversely, if you've got something that's dropped in value, you want to sell it this year, uh, especially if, if you've got capital gains to offset maybe from last year, or the last couple of years, because capital losses can be carried back and you might be able to recover taxes that you paid last year or the year before or, or the year before that. Um, so the timing of your investments uh, purchases makes sense. Also, if you're buying an investment, uh, an interest bearing investment, um, that has an anniversary that is, you know, every year on the anniversary pays out interest to you. You might want to wait till January to buy that kind of a, of a thing because that investment um, on the anniversary every year is going to uh, 
I give you some taxable interest. And, you know, if you do that in 2022, you're going to pay tax on that interest in 2023. Whereas if you wait until January, you won't pay tax until 2024. So, so some investments are designed that way where they've got uh, annual interest accruals that you pay tax on. I, I'm here just um, to be more conscious of when I'm paying expenditures. So if I can move the expenditure forward into December, the time we're talking, or I can uh, move the revenue I'm taking in later. And it's just sort of as a mindset. And I would see that's what it is. It's, you know, I, I, there's things I'm ticking off in my head as you're talking about expenditures. You know, that if, yeah, it, it's always asking the question, if I sell this or I buy this, you know, what's the tax implication and what year is that tax implication? And you want to uh, pay tax uh, later rather than sooner. And if you can claim a deduction sooner rather than later, that's better as well. So it, it's just choosing the tax year that you're going to affect. And, and let me just finish with this is that, as I said, and you know me, I'll trick you and say on the air. So you're embarrassed. You have to say yes, but we will do more, some more tax planning. It's the number one expenditure for virtually every Canadian now. And so it's important, again, within the law, but do maximize, uh, you know, or, or you know, the, the amount of deductions you have. Why pass up a deduction at, at any time? Was there anything in the last year or two that sort of was new that maybe people who are even cognizant of this stuff uh, haven't taken advantage of? Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting. Not a whole lot has actually changed in the last year that that's, that's, you know, affects a lot of people in terms of tax changes. Obviously, there are some new taxes like the luxury tax on vehicles and boats and, and, and things. I mean, it, you, don't, you don't have to buy a very um, high-end car to, to get, get to $100,000 now for a vehicle. Um, and so, you know, if you can, you know, be, be aware of those kinds of tax change, that kind of a tax change, you might want to keep your car under $100,000. Otherwise, you're paying an automatic 10% tax on top of that. So that's obviously something that affects a lot of a lot of people today. In fact, I bought a new truck uh, about a week ago and deliber- deliber- deliberately kept the, the total price tag under $100,000 to, to be able to uh, you know avoid that luxury tax. Um, I think aside from that, um, obviously, there's some things that went on with the CERB and the, the some of the government benefits that people received during the pandemic. Some people are now having to pay those back. Um, you know, if you paid tax on some of those benefits at one time and now you have to pay them back, you should get a deduction for what you're paying back. Be aware of that as well. So, you know, coming out of the pandemic, there's a few things that we're thinking about, including capital gains tax rates could, could quite well go up in, in the future. And so for some people, they're choosing to trigger their capital gains, you know, in the near term rather than, you know, paying tax at a higher rate, possibly if they do change the rules in another four months or five months when the next federal budget comes out. That's something to think about. These are all things that, that are worth contemplating as, as we go forward into 2023. Well, and, and I'm sincere in thanking you for taking the time, but also because it's so important and becoming more important uh, that I hope we can have a visit uh, in, in the new year. There's a couple of big subjects I want to talk about, do a whole, whole set on just someone who's, uh, you know, self, you know, I'm self-employed you know, home deductions, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Plus, as I say, these other things, these major tax planning uh, things that we've got to think about at least. But uh, in the meantime, Tim, thanks so much for finding time and I wish you and your family a Merry Christmas. Yeah, thanks, Michael, and to you as well. And we'll talk in the new year. You know, it's interesting. It seems like daily, weekly, we get these talks about, you know, some sort of a breach, a cyber attack, somebody's been hacked, personal problems, that kind of thing. 
I, but I'm finding it gets enhanced during the Christmas season, at least for individuals worried about that kind of stuff. So I thought I'd tag Ian Patterson, who is the CEO of Pluralock, uh, to help us. He's always great with his time about what's going on in that world and maybe some advice for us. But I want to start with this. Ian, first of all, thanks for taking time with us. Always and, happy uh, to help. And I'll give you a big pat in the back. I, I, I was just looking at how your, avenue, uh, your revenues at Pluralock have been exploding here. I mean, I can't even do the math. Uh, you, you know, like I, I looked at like two years ago when you were sort of starting and you're getting, you got your first million dollars in annual revenue. Presto, I'm two years later and now I see it's $50 million. So you're doing something right over there. Well, I, I appreciate it, Mike. And it's always a pleasure to to help. Unfortunately, uh, the, it seems like the, the better the business does uh, is actually a reflection of just how dangerous the world is. Because uh, we are helping companies with their cybersecurity problems, and there are a lot of problems out there. Yeah, yeah, and I, I appreciate that very much. I was going to say the, wor- the worse the world gets that way, and it is. I mean, is it or is that just my impression? As I say, because I can read headlines. You know, it feels like every day of the week where somebody got hacked or something happened. We hear, of course, uh, internationally at the, at the geopolitical level uh, that cyber attacks are the new frontier for the Third World War. Well, I think what's happening is that consumers and just the the average everyday person is more aware of, frankly, what has been happening uh, for many years. Uh, But I'll give you some statistics. In 2020, we saw more data records breached than in the last 15 years combined. And then from 2020 to 2021, we also saw an increase of cyber attacks hitting businesses. So from a quantification perspective, we are definitely seeing more. I think the other thing that we're seeing a lot is very notable or high profile attacks. And so if you fast forward uh, almost a year ago, we saw a a huge uh, breach with crypto.com that targeted over 500 people's cryptocurrency wallets, hackers stole uh, at that time, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars of Bitcoin and Ethereum. We've seen banks like Flagstar Bank get attacked this past June. We've seen uh, whole counties and local governments be taken offline, including some school districts like like LA uh, school district that got hit September, October. So the, the attacks had always been there, but they are increasing and they're more noticeable and they're as as society becomes more digitally connected, it is impacting us in more direct ways. Yeah. Are you finding, though, the level? So for more aware, fair enough. And I'm, I am sure every time there is one of these big stories uh, comes out, you get more people saying to you, hey, can you help us out with our security needs that way? But still, how would you rank the level of sophistication in terms of understanding that risk? Uh, you know, are we still got a huge amount of companies and individuals just not appreciating how dangerous it is? I, I think that there's been a turning point sometime over the last two years. I've noticed that uh, everybody now realizes that cyber is a risk. I think a couple of years ago, uh, there might have been a sense of, well, that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. I, I think that that has changed, at least from from my viewpoint, although certainly being in the business, I'm a bit biased. I think, though, that what what hasn't yet occurred is to do something about it. And so we still talk to a lot of businesses and government agencies who are just beginning their cybersecurity journey to get safe. Um, And it's possible that they're doing so because they're required to either by regulation like GDPR in Europe, CCPA, California, uh, or it also could be that that there's some partner of theirs or supplier. So I'll give you another statistic. In the first part of 2021, 
Canadian cybersecurity insurance providers paid out more in damages than they collected in premiums. Now, what that means in practice is that if you had cyber insurance or you want to get cyber insurance, guess what? You have to do a lot more now to get it than you did a year or two years ago. And that's causing purchase behavior. That's driving purchase behavior to to purchase cybersecurity software and hardware. Yeah, it's interesting on that score is because the insurance companies don't want to, you know, insure somebody who they think is an open door, you know, who aren't doing anything, you know, because they just realize that's a claim waiting to happen. Absolutely. It, it's all about risk. And cybersecurity is a form of risk in your business. And if you uh, ad- adopt the right uh, processes, if you put the right protections and controls in place, you have a chance at minimizing that risk. But it's not binary. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always surprised when people think, well, if I, if I buy antivirus, uh, I am suddenly safe. Well, first of all, viruses were a threat 15, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Now we have much more sophisticated threats, although viruses do still exist. Um, but the, the, the challenge is if you bought that antivirus software, you have to keep it, but you also have to add the new defenses against the emerging threats. So it's a it's a very dynamic industry, and it's it's part of the, the opportunity that we see ahead of us. Well, let's talk about individuals, because as I say, again, maybe the, the time of year people are, are worried about some problem with, you know, <laughs> I mean, we all remember those times when people didn't want to put their, uh, you know, their visa card over the Internet, that kind of stuff. Uh, worried about pa- passwords and all of that. Where are we at with that right now? I mean, are individuals also coming up? Because uh, as I say, I noticed this time of year, it seems to be concerns are enhanced. I, I think that that's actually a good thing. I think the fact that concerns are enhanced means that people are paying attention and people want to do the right thing. But I'll tell you, uh, just, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I actually got an email from a shareholder um, who was asking for personal advice and, and they had gotten uh, uh, some very suspicious text messages uh, that uh, that went to their phone. It seemed like there had been an, an issue. Now, thankfully, we, we talked through it and, and the person's bank accounts were all safe. Um, but it's challenging because individuals don't have the level of resources the businesses do. And so uh, unless you have a, a go-to friend or, or person you can call, it can be quite intimidating because uh, there's a lot of conflicting advice out there. And, and folks don't always necessarily know what, what they need to do today to stay safe. That might be different from a year or two years ago. Well, you just mentioned one. Uh, at least I'm going back a little bit, but not that far, where the worry was about, uh, you know, these sort of bogus emails that you get. And I, I was the victim of one that was, I couldn't believe how sophisticated it was in terms of getting me to open the, the attachment. You know, it, it came from a, a recognizable uh, a friend who had obviously been hacked, but it was a subject matter that was right on to something I had actually been talking to that person about. You know, so it, oh, okay, they want more information on this. And now they've moved into text messages uh, in the last while. And I think still a lot of people aren't aware of that. They get the text message and they don't know how dangerous it is. So you're absolutely correct. And you are you are right. These are very convincing emails. So th- there's two different ways the emails can work. The first is they have a, an email that looks like somebody you've been corresponding with, but maybe uh, there's a one letter off in the domain name. Uh, that they use to send the email. So if you skim it really quick, it looks like, sure, this is a legitimate email uh, and, and, and go from there. Or it might also be that either there's, there's malware or there's a more advanced intruder who's taken over your friend's uh, email. And so it is a legitimate email. It's coming from their real account. It's just not the person that you think it is. Um, and then in the contents of those emails, sometimes they'll also use uh, past passwords. 
that you may have uh, used on some service that got compromised a couple of years ago. And that password now is, is, is available on the dark web. And the way that, that the bad guys can use it is they can send you an email and say, listen, I've compromised your accounts. To prove it, here is the password. Now, what you don't know is that actually they've compromised some other service. They seem to have gotten the password and then they use that as, as a form of social engineering. It's a, it's a form of proof. Look, I've got you. Here's, here's something sensitive. And then they ask you for, for either to conduct actions or they ask you to send certain things. But it is extremely convincing. Um, and that's just the level, that's an indication anyway of the level of threat uh, uh, that these adversaries now face. Well, I hope I'm scaring people here because as I say, I was a victim once and it was really phenomenally inconvenient and worse. So let me come back to passwords then. Give us the latest on what we should do with our passwords. I mean, at first we had a password, then they became a little more sophisticated and then we were supposed to change them, et cetera. What's the latest on, if I want to protect myself, what's the latest on my passwords? Well, it used to be that the advice was to change your passwords frequently. And, and what that actually caused is that nobody could remember their passwords anymore. And so they, <laughs> they ended up creating very easy to to. Uh, remember passwords, and then they would change one digit or, or something. The, the industry as a whole no longer recommends that anymore. Um, the better thing to do is to use a unique password for every site and service that you use. So that means if you use uh, Dropbox, let's say, as, a, as an example, and, and Dropbox gets compromised and, and attackers steal that password, they can't reuse that password on any of the other services that you might, uh, that you might be on. Um, so try and use unique passwords. And really only if you have a reason to do so, if you think or see that there's something suspicious happening at that point, use that to trigger a, a, a replacement or a changing of passwords. But the better thing to do is use a long password, make it unique for each service. And then to make it easier for yourself, try and use some sort of password manager. You can use a third party one. You can use one built into your operating system or built into your browser. I don't, it, to me, the, the, the specific product doesn't matter. It's just the practice of using something which allows you to keep those unique passwords, keep them safe, keep them convenient for you. That is actually a much better thing to do than to be changing your passwords regularly. Well, what about this is that I, I go, okay, so here's 10 uh, 10 different services that require a password and they're essential. Like my bank would be an obviously an obvious one, but then I've got other passwords. I couldn't care less if somebody had it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it might be to a subscription service and they're unrelated. Am I crazy? Uh, you know, at that point uh, that, that I would divide the essential stuff I could not have ripped off or I don't want anyone party to, but I have stuff, you know, you, you sign into a lot of things that I don't care about. I, I think that the the challenge with that is it's, it, it requires decision and humans get decision fatigued having to remember, mm -hmm. well, is it, or do I consider this a sensitive service? Do I not consider this a sensitive service? I think the easier rule of thumb that most people um, can do without thinking too much is just use a different password for everything. And again, make it easier on yourself. Use the technology that's there. Yes, in some regards, if you use a password manager, you are centralizing your passwords in one spot. So that that does create some risk. Security is always a trade off. That's just the way it is. But in on the grand scheme of things, if you can if you can make use of unique passwords for every service, then you don't really have to worry about is this a sensitive site? Is it not? Or does that change over time? So, for instance, you might be testing a an email service or a cloud backup service. 
you don't think it's sensitive because there's nothing in there, but fast forward two years, you've got all kinds of financial documents in there. It becomes sensitive. Uh, and and now you sort of have a problem. So strong recommendation, use unique passwords, use password managers, and also turn on wherever possible, turn on either two-factor authentication uh, or what's, what's shortened to be 2FA or multi-factor authentication. That's where you're requiring not just a password, but something else, some other form of authentication, like a text message, like a USB key, uh, like, like something else um, to say, listen, even if somebody does steal my password, even though it's unique, even though it's encrypted, even if that does happen, you have some other backup form of, of, of proving your identity that should keep you safe. You know, it's one of those subjects I deal with a lot in, you know, people's finances, et cetera. And it reminds me, there's a few subjects that people just put off, but are so key. I'll give you an example is a will. I recommend that anybody who's got a dependent, it's good to have a will no matter what, <clears throat> especially when you have any dependents whatsoever, you've got to have an up-to-date will, but a lot of people don't. This is one of those in that category for me. You know, wait till you have a problem, then you will spend the next 48 hours wishing you had done something, you know, <laughs> because these problems really are huge when they can be just straight financial, someone's ripped you off, but they can cause a lot of other ripple effects. Don't wait till that hits you. I'm just thinking you're giving great advice and seriously, great advice for me. I'm going back. I'm, I'm getting off the air here and I'm going to go and start dealing with this. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's just that important. Uh, last thing, though, quickly, Ian, we look at the Christmas season. We look at shopping online. Is this come back to the same thing if I'm giving, uh, you know, just make sure what I'm doing is unique? I think so. And and I think that most sites that you're going to go to are safe. So don't worry about putting your credit card number into, into Amazon, for instance. Everything has risk, of course, but there's also a risk in, in going physically to shopping malls to buy things. So you got to You got to get out there and live your life. You know, I think that the, the comment about the will is, is a good one. The, the digital equivalent of that is backups. So we've we've stressed passwords and using unique passwords. I think the other major thing that consumers can do is to use some sort of cloud backup service. Um, again, doesn't matter which one. Use Microsoft, use Dropbox, use Box. You know, it doesn't matter. Just use something. Try and keep your files safe so that if your physical device, if something happens to that, if it if the house burns down, if there's a, a break in and, and your physical device gets stolen, at least you have some sort of backups. Now, this can help you also to uh, combat ransomware. So the way that ransomware works is is basically there's a there's a piece of malware that gets run on your device. Um, those those files that you need, those financial documents, etc., they get encrypted. And they are held for ransom, hence the name. Um, and so you can mitigate a lot of the damage from that if you have backups, if they're stored somewhere secure, like in the cloud. Again, it's it's very easy to just turn these services on. And it really provides a, a strong peace of mind, exactly the same way that a will does. Well, as usual, great stuff for us. I hope people are listening clearly. And, uh, you know, you need a hobby, take care of your cybersecurity, whether you're in business or an individual. Ian Patterson is CEO of Pluralock, P-L-U-R on the exchange, Pluralock. Ian, thanks very much, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Thanks, Mike. You as well. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. You know, I'm thinking, though, maybe I should add that it's only shocking to me, but not the majority of Canadians. I'm talking about the Abacus poll 
on whether the federal government made the right decision in invoking the Emergencies Act. Now, it was done about halfway through the inquiry into the Emergencies Act, so maybe it would change somewhat. But in the poll, 63% yes, the government was made the right decision in using the Emergency Act. It was 73% in Quebec, 71% in BC, and the low was in the Prairie Provinces, about 53%, Alberta, Manitoba, Saskatchewan. But what that means is 63% of Canadians thought existing laws were not enough to end the uh, protest, despite the fact that no law enforcement, it wasn't the Ottawa police or the RCMP who requested it, despite the fact that police had reached an agreement with protesters to stand down the day before they employed the Emergencies Act, despite the fact that the RCMP in an internal email acknowledged there was, in quotes, no serious violence in Ottawa, end of quote. That was contrary to the claims, by the way, of Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino. Boy, that guy has a consistent challenge with telling the truth. The RCMP did falsely claim that protesters had weapons outside Parliament, but they later retracted the accusation. Internal Department of Public Safety reports issued the very day that the Emergency Act was invoked, said the protests were small, peaceful, and had little impact on federal operations. In quotes, disruption to government activities is so far minor. Despite accusation of foreign funding by the Attorney General Lametti, who Labour admitted, well, maybe not, because he had relied on a false CBC report that the Mother Corp was forced to retract. Some people still think that. No, it wasn't. It was not foreign funded in the way that was presented. And by the way, we know from this week, Blacklock's reporter, cabinet staffers knew the accusation was false about foreign funding, but they thought it was too, too difficult to sort of backtrack on that. I can go on. But from the get-go, the fact is, whether you supported the convoy or not, whether you supported it or not, there was a litany of false reports that suggested the protesters were maybe violent or armed, arsonists, they danced on the tomb of the unknown soldier, financed by foreign forces, and especially, of course, Trump allies in the U.S. But that's not the point. The point of the question is, did the government have to suspend individual rights? including freezing the bank accounts of anyone suspected of supporting the convoy, not even participating, supporting, not accused or convicted of anything, but still had their bank accounts frozen, an act that shocked commentators around the world, I think even more so than in Canada. Private property rights are one of the fundamental principles of a free society, and 63% of Canadians supported abandoning them. I mean, what will be the next excuse by the next government, any government, any stripe? As I said, obviously, it's not shocking for the majority of Canadians who support the suspension of individual freedoms under the Emergencies Act. Much of the justification based on erroneous reports, when a peaceful resolution had already been negotiated, but it certainly did shock me. 63% of Canadians, a majority in every province, for goodness sakes, didn't blink at suspending individual rights. And that's the foundation, foundation of our democracy. Hey, just one more thing here. Obviously, it's a holiday season. And maybe you don't know, but I'm, I'm a big supporter of Special Olympics. I think there's no group other than people with intellectual disabilities who are more overlooked, including during the pandemic. Their health co- outcomes were the worst other than people who are over 80 years old. I mean, it's atrocious. I could go on and on, and goodness knows, I've got friends who think I do. 
But I just want to let you know, the idea of sending, they, they have for the first time, they have their winter games in Kamloops in February. They haven't got together, just like we haven't with the World Outlook, haven't got together in several years. It's four years since they've had a provincial winter games. I mean, it's a, it's a great time for people. It's for many of the athletes who attend, it'll be the only trip this year. It'll be the highlight of their year. So I'm just saying, if you're able to help support Special Olympics with a donation, this is the time of year to do it, as we talked to Tim Sesnick. You know, this is the time of year to do it because uh, obviously you can get your tax deduction. But as I say, it's incredibly in, important to help out. I think so many good causes. I'm just talking about Special Olympics uh, because, uh, I, again, I can tell you firsthand, I'm on the executive. I've been volunteering for over 20 years. It has been a tough time. It's been really a tough time. So if you're able to help, well, go ahead and do it. All you have to do is go to specialolympics.ca. There's a tag right at the top called Donate Now. Donate now with it, specialolympics.ca forward slash British hyphen Columbia, forward slash British hyphen Columbia. Hey, I'm just throwing this out there. You want to do a good deed this week? Well, go ahead and do that. Donate to Special Olympics. Help support bringing an athlete, because everything is free, to the Games. Of course, the big story coming out of the midweek is a rise in interest rates. And again, wasn't a surprise, a big debate, as we said earlier, between half a percent and a quarter point. Doesn't matter. Things are going a bit crazy. And the number one sector getting impacted, of course, is real estate. I want to bring Aussie Jurek in. Aussie, I still sit there and I go, okay, March 1st, the bank rate was a quarter percent. Now it's a four and a quarter, 17 times higher. You know, obviously it has an impact, but as I said, nobody, uh, no sector more than real estate. No question, and that means the prime, as just announced by the major banks this week, the 6.45%, the seventh hike this year. My goodness gracious. And when you take a look at, um, it isn't just the new borrowers that are get affected, but it's the borrowers from yesterday, like six months ago or a year ago or two years ago, who have now things they never heard before, trigger rate. You know, what the hell is that? Well, a trigger rate is reached when an owner's mortgage payment no longer covers interest. And yeah, so then that, no matter, even if you have yeah. a fixed payment, that's the whole crazy thing. My payment is fixed. Well, it's fixed as long as you're only paying interest. Now they're faced with three things to do. Make a lump sum payment, make a higher monthly payment every month, and it's been increasing every month, or extend the loan as long as you can, maybe 30 years or more. You know, so you have some options, but... Boy, is it ever hurting. Yeah, and, and of course, the Bank of Canada themselves were saying, this is before this hike, over 50% of people with a variable rate mortgage were hitting their trigger rate. Well, this is going to boost even more with a half percent increase. But just once again, a trigger rate means, hey, yeah, I, I, I still may pay my 2000 a month, depending on the size of the mortgage, of course. That doesn't change. The percentage that goes toward paying off principal does, though, and then you get to this underwater you, put, you still pay your 2000 It's not even covering the interest costs. But you the, know, key I mean, is, yeah, yeah, the key, yeah. Michael, is the moment that it doesn't, the bank raises the rate even if you have a fixed rate. That's what people yeah. don't realize. They think it's always 2000 No, it isn't. The moment I pay the wall, it's only interest. They want more, and in some cases, a lot more. Yeah, and, and as you say, I mean, just I was looking at some stats going back, Ozzy, uh, a week or two ago, and it was just for one province. It was just for British Columbia, but the estimate was... Uh, 50, 50 plus percent of mortgages 
are coming due within the next two years. Doesn't matter if you were fixed, it's you know, your time's running out. You had a fix that, you know, in 2018 or 2019, that kind of thing. So, I mean, the impact is going to be huge, but I mean, I'll, I'll come back to the other thing, Ozzy, that you've been talking about. As you look at that prime rate at 6.45%, you know, last March, you were looking at 2.45%. Right. What about those people? And we know it's a significant number who have one of those home equity loans that's floating with prime. Yeah, no question. I mean, let's say you bought a house for 750000 Let's say you put 10% down. So you're 675000 a mortgage has a payment of about 2600 last February, March. Now with the interest rate increases, it's now over 4000 So that's 1400 a month more. I mean, this is really incredible. And, yeah. and as, as you said, the HELOC mortgage is probably now 7%, and you probably signed it at 2 or less, right? It, so the key is that this is going to hurt, no question about it. And certainly hurt in many areas. I mean, I, gosh, I sit there, and this is one of the reasons, and this is hardly helpful. But, you know, that's why I always say if you want to speculate on interest rates, it wasn't your home you should do it in. And I am proud of the fact, by the way, as I mean, that's got to be the, my most consistent message because I was most sure of it. From February Outlook Conference, February 2020, I should have said, I said, one more kick at the can going down into the summer and lock, 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 lock. And it does, and you can't afford to be making decisions. Of, yeah, but it could go another quarter. It could go down another. And that's what happens. It's like sort of yeah. a FOMO thing in the finance world. And now look at the other side because it was always vulnerable. And uh, yeah. we'll see where this ends. I mean, the Bank of Canada gave their first strong hint that uh, they're going to wait and see. And maybe in their January, I think it's the January 25th meeting, they may not raise them again, But my, or, or at that point, I shouldn't say again, at that point. But still, I, I'm just absolutely worried about the number of people it's going to change the economy because you get to stay in your house. Oh, yeah, but you're not going out anymore. You're not taking a vacation. Some That money's coming from somewhere. No question about it. The other thing, too, is that people somehow think that we have a pivot point. You know, in my Ozbuzz newsletter, mm -hmm. people say, oh, when it's pivoting back down, it's not going to go back down. It may not go back any higher, but it's going to stay there. And I would stay there at least for the whole next year. But there's some bright spot, Mike. The actual, what people don't realize is that we are in a world where the long-term rates are tied to the bond rates. And the bond rates have actually come down. And so if you look in the United States, uh, my, my realtor in uh, Phoenix, for instance, Todd Smith, he says, hey, but I, was a, I had a 7.2% mortgage in October. I can get you now a 6% one. So it's a full percent down. And when you look in Canada, I was talking to uh, Keaton Kirkwood in, in Edmonton, and he says, you know, an insured prime mortgage, if you're over 65 loan-to-value ratio, it's 0.6 below prime. So if prime is six, you know, I get it at 5.8. And if I'm under 65%, I get almost a full percent lower. So I'm only at 5.45. And then finally, a rental property today, HSBC offers a 30 amortization at 5.4%. So it's not all bad. I know of one fellow that insured a, a $9 million mortgage on 120 Sweden in Edmonton, and he got the mortgage at 4.1%. So clearly, when the bond rate, the Canadian five-year bond rate goes down, so do long-term mortgage rates. And that's why you need a quality mortgage broker, a professional that understands the markets. Well, I'll talk to Victor more about this because he's been keeping an eye on the bond market for us. And uh, the point is this, is that the bond market is just reacting to perceptions about what's coming. So it seems like the recessionary scenario 
is pretty much embedded. And that's what the bond market's saying. Demand for money is going to go down because we're in a recession. Ergo, we can have those rates drift a little bit lower. Then you do get a statement like the Bank of Canada on Wednesday saying, hey, maybe we'll you know, hold off depending on what the numbers show us. Okay. I think that's getting reflected in that. So, But your point is a very important one. A pivot suggests go one way, then another. No, there's going to be this period, and, and gosh knows, you know, different numbers can produce even higher rates, but it's certainly not going to have some major, oh, we're going to go down 2% now. Right, and that's so important. That's why, as I keep saying, you need a professional, because just the idea on what the loan-to-value ratio makes a difference of a half a percent, and maybe you as an investor, there's maybe a private lender that gives you a better rate. You, you and I, we talked to about Kyle Green in Vancouver from Green Mortgage, or like I say, in Edmonton, Keaton Kirk. You want to have those, there's a lot of good professionals out there, but make sure that you have both on the realtor side and the mortgage broker side. This is no time for how fast can I drive with my full drive off, full price <laughs> offer, you know. It's, okay. You need to know something. Okay, just very quickly, let's grab a couple of numbers. You know, we've got the, uh, the November numbers in now, you know, reconfirming there has been a slowdown, as I started by saying, no sector has been more impacted by the rates. But just give us a quick snapshot. Well, in, in February, my Osvas quoted that the high was in place and it was in place. So everywhere, like in Toronto, for instance, sales now are down 49%. But what's really down is the price in the area code 416, the prices from 2,100,000 to 1,500,000 to 1,500,000. That's a 31% decline. You go to Surrey, the, the price is down from 1,900,000 to 1,300,000, 31% decline. Now, Vancouver itself is only only down 14% from 2.3 to 1,000,009. So the prices are down, the sales are down, but the in, real interesting number to watch is active listings. So normally when active listings rise and sales are down, that really reflects the price. But you go to Calgary, active listings are actually down 24%. But in Toronto, listen to this, Mike, active listings, that is all the properties that are for sale at the end of the month, they're up 95% from 6,000 to 12,000 listings. I mean, mind-boggling. Wow. I mean, even the Fraser Valley, the single-family home listings are up substantially, like something like 53%. And so, so as we see in the lower mainland, listings rise, sales go down. There's no question about it, it will affect prices. Well, you know, you're talking about some of those price drops. I mean, this is a monster drop for people's net worth. That's what the, also have been chronicled in many places, saying more is to come. Obviously, we'll be here chronicling it. But in the meantime, people should go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca, uh, sign up. It's a monthly letter from Aussie. It's absolutely free, ozbuzz.ca. Aussie, uh, yeah, you depressed me. I was going to say, uh, let's have a more <laughs> cheerful week. <laughs> no, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. And the next one will be out this Saturday. So if you sign up, you're going to get it in your inbox. And remember this, Mike, truth hurts. Maybe not as much as jumping on a bicycle with a seat missing, but it hurts. Yeah, both. Have, I've experienced both. Thanks, Ozzy. I want to go live to the trading desk now. We've got so many questions after this week. I guess every week I've got a lot of questions. That's why I love to bat clean up with Victor Adair, victoradare.ca. Vic, hey, let me start. With, i got a couple of things on my mind, and they're related. But let me start with the oil price. And I'm proud to say back in September, you know, I, 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 Joseph Schachter was on. We had others on saying, you know, look for that low in that $70 range in November. Well, we're there. 
you know, we're in the low 70s, uh, you know, hitting $70. Just give me your take on that, first of all. Well, if we talk about oil, for me, I'm talking about WTI futures as they're traded in New York. Uh, we, as you say, got down to about $70 here toward the end of this week. Uh, that's the lowest price we've seen on that uh, contract in, uh, in a year. Uh, we're down $60 uh, from the highs that we made when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, where this also shows up, Mike, in the gasoline prices. Gasoline prices right now are back to where they were about a year ago. But when again, <laughs> when the price went up, it particularly made the high when the Russians went into the Ukraine. Gasoline had doubled, and now it's fallen in half from those levels. So I think a lot of our, our listeners probably are much more aware of where the gasoline price is than, than say, just where crude oil is. Now, I got to throw this again, though. I'm not surprised at that. You know, we have Don Violo on with us on a regular basis. And Don always talks because it's one of my favorite trades because it's been so consistent is to watch the gasoline price get low. I talked about that actually quite a bit in August saying, you know what, we know that driving stops demand, you know, for gasoline drops a lot, you know, from the drummer, summer driving season. And it's been a wonderful seasonal trade, you know, as you get through into Oct uh, sorry, into February. Uh, on that side. So again, it's another one of those, well, I'm hardly surprised that we have had that weakness in gasoline. And and to me, you know, that may represent an opportunity over the next couple of months, as is oil. Yeah, well, certainly Don uh, talks very much about the seasonality of all different kinds of markets. And uh, I'm always intrigued by that. I mean, certainly it kind of makes sense that uh, people would be uh, burning less gasoline in Christmas time than when, you know, the summer vacation period is on. Uh, I, I guess the, the, uh, the, the, the big question for me around the fossil fuel prices is, you know, what's your time frame? And I know when we talk with Joseph Schachter, we, we're really, really conscious about time frame. And, and where I'm going with that is there, there's a story out there that says, you know, there's no CapEx uh, being of any degree being spent there to develop resources. We're going to need more fossil fuels over the next number of years even before in a perfect world, if we can transition to sustainable. So how come, you know, the price is going down when a lot of people have this story in their mind that the price ought to be going up because of this demand that we're going to have. Well, as you say, there, there, there's the time frame is always key to understand. Uh, fascinating on a couple of things that you brought up there is one is, uh, you know, companies are not spending to increase production to any degree. We know demand is going to increase. That's the long-term bullish case. But I find it interesting, Vic, that I look inside the uh, energy stock side of things, and they have not fallen. Yes, yeah, sir, they back. I call it backing off. But they certainly haven't done anything like falling down like the price of oil. And I suspect it's because, hey, they haven't been spending their money on new production, which is sort of a black hole a lot of times, especially was in fracking. No, instead, they just keep on, you know, it's like when we started to talk about um, uh, oil and gas stocks, we were talking with Eric Nuttall about it. This is going back quite a while because I was keen on it over a year ago. And his models were only talking about $70 oil, you know, and then he said he'd project those out. And he says, man, these things are just printing money. At $70 oil, of course, it went up subsequently to 120, 125. That was even more gravy. But I sort of think that some major investors sit back and say, hey, this is still not a bad business, even at $70 oil, in terms of what it means for shareholders and dividends and buybacks and stuff like that. 
Yeah, I think the I put I guess I had a, a paragraph or two about the discrepancy between what was happening to the futures prices for gasoline and WTI and what was happening to the share prices of oil and gas producers. I put some questions about that on my blog, and I had some very interesting answers. And certainly one of the ones that made a lot of sense to me was that the oil and gas industry is no longer just a levered play on the price of oil. It is a free cash flow generating industry you know, where they're paying good, well-covered dividends and so on. So they're not as, say, tied to the price of oil. But for the traders out there that are using futures markets and that, I think what has been the driving force behind taking prices down here the past couple of months is that across all of the markets, whether it's stocks or currencies or the interest rate market or the commodities, there's this shift in attitude from, hey, the most important thing is what's the Fed going to do uh, to, hey, what has the Fed done? Like, have they set up conditions here where we're going to go into a recession, which will be different than where we've been, and that's going to bring a whole new dynamic into how we price everything from bonds to crude oil. And I, I think you're so right. That's the key, is that people are now have really changed their mind. It's a wonderful point you're making. Uh, they've changed their mind, or people, I should say, you know, the consensus seems to be moving toward there is going to be a recession. We're just timing it. You know, we're, you know, we've, we've sort of been saying here, it's going to come, you know, April, May, that kind of period. And by the way, I, sorry, I've got to say this because I want to make sure everybody hears it. I think next year is going to be more volatile than this year. I think there's going to be surprises to come. So that's my backdrop. We'll talk about it at the World Outlook Conference and others can agree or disagree. I'm just saying, but this is part of that context is that, you know, uh, we're still wondering about Chinese demand and there's talk about again, but we've been talking about this for three months, easing their restrictions, you know, and then I see their caseload continues to explode as soon as they did. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen there, but I think you're right on with this. It's now sort of a little more consensus that we'll get recession, which reduces demand. And that's what's getting reflected. Yeah, and if we look at the stock market, I mean, let's keep in mind that from the lows in the middle of October, to the highs that we made here, just call it last week. So in about six or seven weeks, the Dow Jones rallied 6,000 points or more than 20% as the market was kind of into this idea of, hey, the Fed's getting pretty close to not raising rates anymore. And once, you know, they ring that bell, you know, it's a green light special to buy stocks, buy commodities, what have you. So we've, we've had that kind of a move. So having a little setback here this week in the stock market uh, has been pretty mild compared to as, as markets try to transition to thinking about a coming recession. It's been a pretty mild correction so far anyway, uh, compared to that huge rally we had over the last six weeks. Uh, but let's leave it with this, Vic, is that your point right off the top, which and we make it consistently because it's essential. When you're hearing people talk about different asset classes, different, you know, the markets, what have you, get your time frame, match it with what you're hearing. You know, listen, are they talking longer term? Are they talking short term? Because it's quite possible, as you do, Vic, all the time, is I can be very bullish on something longer term, but that doesn't mean it's a short term trade. You know, and I, I just think that's so important because I still see that mistake made consistently. Well, I'll tell you what, Mike, I still make that mistake. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'll have a view on the market, I'll express that view, and then I start second-guessing myself because I think, well, maybe over the next uh, day or two, the, you know, that won't carry on. Um, getting the 
time frame of my trading in sync with the time frame of my analysis is a is a great idea but uh <laughs> it's not always that easy to do <laughs> well no but if we're if we're going to do a show we should do a special and i can i can top that mistake you've made you know we can play i can top that because that's one of the great things there's something different i wrote a little thing this week by the way vic and i posted it Big difference between investing and other things because you pay a price when you're wrong investing. That encourages people to create, uh, you know, the limits of your knowledge. You create risk management systems because you lose money when you're wrong. That is in sharp contrast, and we're seeing it play out in real time, to politics. You can come on, and, and in fact, some people, you know, and I welcome the feedback, but sometimes I get absolutely harebrained response to some of the things I'm talking about, but they pay no price for being wrong. The politicians have been dead wrong in so many areas, it doesn't cost them a bit. We've had the Federal Reserve, Central Bank of Canada wrong in so many areas, doesn't cost them. And that's the thing, and in, in even just listening to you there, you have to acknowledge your mistakes if you're going to be successful. You have to adjust. You have to refine your approach to the markets and your own psychology. I mean, all of that, that's the big big game here. And as I say, uh, and that's why you're good at it, to be honest. That's why you're good at it. You're very cognizant of when things go wrong, when I go right. Can I do more of what's going right? Well, I guess my mantra on that is that I make money by having good risk management rather than by having a great crystal ball. I mean, I've got all kinds of ideas about what maybe would happen in the future. But what I do is I'm, I'm I mean, I can't, I can't free myself up from having those beliefs or prejudices or what have you, but I, I need to manage them <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and look at what the market is doing rather than what I think it ought to be doing. Hallelujah. VictorAdare.ca. VictorAdare.ca. Uh, Vic posts every week. You can see the charts that he's looking at and some of his thinking on broader thinking on what we're chatting about here. Vic, thanks for taking the time. I hope you have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Blacklock's Reporter was founded 10 years ago by a group of six independent journalists. And they focus on the nitty-gritty of Ottawa. I mean, it could be things like Senate and House of Common Committee meeting records, uh, testimony, reports, of course, federal communications, documents. I mean, in short, the stuff that mainstream media doesn't have the time, maybe not the money, maybe not the interest to cover, but absolutely key for anyone wanting to know what the federal government is up to and how it's operating. And I think they do a brilliant job bringing forth information that otherwise the public wouldn't hear or read. I'm going to give you some examples here. Without Blacklocks, we wouldn't know the size of the bonuses handed out by CBC's management during the pandemic, or bonuses for federal executives in general, upper management. Cost more than $190 million last year. It was Blacklocks who reported that the Parliamentary Budget Office estimates that interest charges on the federal debt because of the rising rates, are expected to expand from $23 billion to $46 billion by 2045. That number went up, uh, by the way, <laughs> yeah, uh, on Wednesday when they raised interest rates. Another $2 billion interest charge this year, compounding to over $12 billion extra over five years. And when it comes to reporting on the truckers' convoy, well, nobody followed and reported on the testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry more thoroughly. Without them, we'd have literally very little idea of what really happened, as I mentioned earlier, mainly because many in the mainstream media would have been forced to blow the whistle on themselves. So it didn't get reported. Just last week, though, uh, I'll give you an example. 
Blacklocks reported that taxpayer-funded polling jumped 17% in the lead-up to the election to $18 million. You know what? That's over 400% more than when the Liberals assumed office in 2015. Talk about runaway inflation. And much to the disgrace of the Director of Communications, the ba- uh, Bank, uh, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin, well, the Director of Communications was caught on tape saying he didn't want Blacklocks asking questions and gave preferential treatment to Bloomberg. And there was not even a pretense of professional impartiality. Now to the goofy. This week, Blacklocks was escorted out of the Ottawa press gallery under armed police escort, accompanied by executives of the parliamentary press gallery. And now they're banned for, it looks like, three months. Blacklocks points out that the expulsion occurred, though, one day after they published access to information records, which revealed a private meeting between 35 publishers who remained unknown and the Canada Revenue Agency on how to divvy up the $595 million in that media fund. Taxpayer funded again. Back in April 2021, Blacklocks, kind of on the same score though, sponsored a motion asking the quotes that all gallery members disclose all applications for grants, rebates, subsidies to any branch of the Government of Canada, and that disclosures be published on the press gallery website. Now, it was defeated, 18 to 1. The press gallery officials say that Blacklocks' stance and questions regarding media subsidies have nothing to do with the expulsion. Instead, they said it's in response to Blacklock's, Paul Korsky's rude behavior to other press gallery reporters and his refusal to wear headphones while he's listening to news reports, obviously disturbing others. The Canadian Parliamentary Press Gallery's constitution states so that members may be terminated for serious misconduct. So we're going to have to wait. This is going to go to the courts. We'll see if the court agrees that's serious misconduct. But in the meantime, in the Prime Minister's own words, We recognize how important it is to support our strong, independent media and to encourage journalists to continue to hold those in power here and all around the world to account. Well, the expulsion of Blacklocks does nothing to further that. As for continuing to hold those in power to account, well, no one does it better in Canada than Blacklocks. The public interest is not served by the expulsion. Hey, just a reminder again, of course, we've got the, uh, the February 3rd and 4th World Outlook Conference. It is live. I think we have a few silver one-ounce coins left. I'll have to check on that. I can't promise it, but we want to get on that. And again, now it's time to start thinking, hey, I haven't done my Christmas shopping. Well, you better get on it, and this is a great way to do. Give someone a, uh, give someone a ticket to the World Outlook Conference. Go with them. Have a great weekend there. So much to hear. I'm really proud of the lineup we've got. I'm excited about it. But all you have to do is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca. Do that. Or, again, you can always join us during the week. Well, I shouldn't say always. I hope you do. And I do appreciate when you bring people with you. I do appreciate sincerely when you say, hey, why don't you check out Money Talks? All you have to do is Money Talks tweets or Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook and, of course, mikesmoneytalks.ca. In the meantime, I hope you have a terrific week.